Hey everybody, welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're going to focus on the career of recording engineer Sylvia Massey. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hello and welcome back. Boy, are we excited. Uh, there's such a great, great topic today in the amazing career of recording engineer Sylvia Massey, who we were so blessed and honored to interview not long ago, just uh, at the outbreak of the pandemic, I think, just a year or so ago. And I'm really, really thrilled that we have the opportunity to have a very special guest with us. Near and dear to my heart is Jonah Del Fiorentino, my son, who uh, has taken the time to review this interview and help us prepare for today's podcast. So welcome, Jonah. Thank you. Hello. So Jonah, tell us a little bit about your impression of our interviewee today, Sylvia Massey. Listening to Sylvia Massey's interview, I felt like my impression or perspective on recording changed very drastically Mm. I kind of just thought of it as just like a step into making music but I didn't really realize how much thought and opinions and emotions and strategies go into uh, recording and so I was just really intrigued and fascinated by what she was saying that's awesome that's great it's fun to have you on the team today Jonah this is great um, any thoughts from our other peanut gallery? Uh, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited uh, hearing about Sylvia. And uh, Suzanne is here as well, and she was actually on hand and did all of the uh, video work for this uh, interview. Any thoughts about, the, about that experience? Well, first of all, I want to say welcome, Jonah. It's always fun to have a special guest. And thank you for all the work you put into this podcast. And I'm very grateful that I was present for the interview. It's really fun when people invite us in and we can see where they actually do the work and all their gear. And she has some gear. And we also got a peek at her vintage microphone collection. Spoiler alert. We'll talk about that later. Um, And just a great, great experience. So enjoy. Awesome. Well, I think with that, let's get started. Here is the beginning of our interview with Sylvia Massey. When I was growing up, my father was a um, mechanical engineer, and he would use a drafting table and do drawings. Uh, and my mother was a uh, opera singer. So I had these both the creative, uh, different sides of creativity in front of me all the time. Um, so I still have my dad's drafting table, and I do illustrations on that now, and then I work in music. And uh, so I, the, the home life that I grew up with really made, a, made an impression on me. What was your mom's singing career? She was in the Michigan Metropolitan Opera. So it was a small pond, but she was a big fish. She was the uh, soloist on several 
productions. And I was sitting in the audience. I remember sitting on my great aunt's knee, watching my mom singing on stage. It was fantastic. <laughs> That's really cool. That's yeah. really neat. And we also know about you, a love for the arts. Did that develop at an early age as well? The arts meaning fine art? Yeah. Yeah. So when I went to college, and I went to university for um, four years at uh, California State University in Chico, I started in the arts because I love painting and drawing. And, but, but strangely, um, my, uh, my passion led me into radio instead. So I became a radio personality and uh, started um, doing radio production using the equipment in the, in the uh, production room. And that's how I became familiar with recording multi-track. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Radio commercials. <laughs> how old were you then? I was in you know, 19. <laughs> yeah. That's really neat. And yeah. you were just hooked on it, huh? Oh, yeah. And then I had jobs everywhere, you know, uh, the college station and then the commercial station locally and to another commercial station and a news station. And then I kind of dabbled in all of it. But really, the reason why I was there was because I loved the music. Mm. And uh, the college radio station at that time had a lot of great new rock music. Um, so I really got hooked into that. But I realized as soon as I left college and I went uh, to get a commercial um, job in radio, that commercial radio is not about music. Mm. It's about commercials, right? So uh, I decided to really dive in and find out how to get into the recording side of music. And I have written music. I've been in several bands. So uh, recording my music was the first thing. And then playing that to other people, uh, they, the other people became interested and said, hey, that's pretty good. Why don't you work with me too? Pretty soon, the, the work that I was doing with other people was turning out a lot better than the stuff that I was doing uh -huh. for myself. So I just continued with it, and it just uh, kind of became a, a career. It was never intended. I never went in that direction, but it seemed a natural progression of things. Wow, that's really neat. Yeah. Tell us about your own music. Oh, wow. I, I was in a metal band. I was in a reggae band. <laughs> I love dub reggae. And that, I think, really influenced my production style because dub reggae is where the producer and the engineer in the studio take tapes, multi-track tapes, and then add effects. And so, in essence, they become a member of the band and um, they're uh, as a a creative part of that project. They they put in all this crazy delays and echoes and reverbs and uh, panning and it's very exciting to listen to these these uh, creations. But it's all in the studio. These are these are not the same musicians that are uh, playing on stage. These are um, uh, these are uh, the, the the studio cats like like me. And my first experience in the studio was at Hyde Street. It was, uh, Hyde Street is still there, right? And um, Hyde Street, uh, the engineer that I worked with, a wonderful guy, he said, here's, this knob is the delay, this one's the reverb, and this, you know, and he said, here's your music, we already finished your main mix, you do your dub mix. And he gave me the controls, and that was the first time I'd ever touched any uh, multi, you know, multi-track music recording, um, and it was it. I, I was so hooked. 
immediately. I was hooked. So that's all I wanted to do after that. That's so crazy. Yeah. How wonderful. And what are some of the highlights for you as far as your career developing? Wow. Well, there's been so many highlights. Um, when I started in Los Angeles, I started working with Prince. And uh, I started as an assistant to other engineers, but pretty soon Prince gave me jobs. He wanted me to mix, um, mix for him, and then I set up for recording, and I did uh, some recording with him. Um, he's very difficult. He was very difficult to work for. Really? How so? Oh, yeah. Well, he's very demanding, and he also was very uncommunicative. So, what, you know, he wants these things done, but he's not, he's, he's trying to get you to read his mind. And in fact, I think he really thought he was communicating with telepathy. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, it was the best thing that could have happened at that time. I uh, learned a lot from him. In uh, one of the most important things I learned from Prince was how to manage uh, recording in several studios at the same time. So I was in one studio, but Prince had four other rooms going too. So he was tracking in one, he was mixing in another. You know, at, at the record plan, he had another mixing room going, and that uh, we'd all share our tapes back and forth. So I, I thought, well, that's amazing. So he, was, he would give me a job, and he'd say, I'll be back. And then he would be gone for four hours. Who knows how long he's going to be gone, but he'd be off in, at another session. And then he'd bounce to another session, and then to another. And, I, and learning that really helped me later um, to create my own studio here in Northern California, uh, where I had five rooms in a theater, and I would bounce between rooms produ producing. And it was a very busy, busy time, but very rewarding. That's really cool. There were many other times in my career that, that are so memorable, I can't even hardly believe that I was a part of it. But one was working with Johnny Cash, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, um, together with Rick Rubin producing, and I was the engineering that was the uh, Unchained album with Johnny. And then I did some work with Tom Petty uh, on one of his projects. Worked with the Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. on a couple things. And uh, System of a Down, which is a, a rock band with a, a special uh, Middle Eastern flavor. Um, I did a record with them, with Rick producing. And then I worked with Tool. I did two records with Tool, and that was kind of my breakthrough uh, in, as a producer. Um, and that was the Opiate and the Undertow record. So that's the, the early Tool. And what was that like switching hats to producing? You know, it's always been the same for me because I started as an engineer in the, in the production rooms. It was kind of like, well... I'm engineering and these people need help. I'm recording them. They really need some direction. I will just jump in. And I started doing that in the tool projects. Wow. And, uh, and then I just, that was what I was doing. So whether I was engineering or producing, it was always kind of the same thing. Now I uh, take the role of a, of a producer and I typically will hire another engineer. So I don't have to think about the, the technology and and spend time on that. I can really concentrate on just the overall music. Very, very cool. Mm. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some of my notes of your amazing career, and there's so many things that it's almost embarrassing that we can't cover all the even the great things that <laughs> you've done. Um, but I was particularly, I've always been a fan of the, of the album that uh, you did with Johnny Cash. 
What was that experience like? Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, he was such a kind gentleman, very tall. He wore black. And he was humble to the point where, you know, you just wanted to hug him because he, was, he would say, uh, well, I don't play guitar very good. I don't sing very good, you know. And, and you're like, dude, you're Johnny. It's okay. <laughs> Come on. You know, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a pleasure. And Rick Rubin um, is a huge fan of Johnny. And you could tell by... Uh, how he would be there early on the session and he'd be the last one to leave you know every day and that was so unusual it was a uh, um refreshing and and it was so good to see everyone in such a good mood uh the music was fantastic um some of johnny's friends came by we had um uh carl perkins come in and do some some parts and uh marty stewart came in and did some parts and Oh yeah, it was fantastic. We had Lindsey Buckingham and and Mick Fleetwood come in, and they had a big jam, and we recorded that. Wow! I mean, I was pinching myself the whole time. I I would be at the desk, Rick's over there with the clients, and I would turn my head to see who was in the room because every time I would turn my head, it would be like, oh my god, oh my god, I can't believe it, you know. But then that's kind of what we do. That's amazing. Yeah. So when you're working with that level of I mean, those guys have all recorded before, obviously, to great uh, uh, effects. I'm just sort of wondering, what are the challenges with a project like that for you, from your point of view? Well, as an engineer, the worst thing that could happen is to have the client come in, put on headphones, and be like, oh, I can't hear myself. Uh, and then they put their headphones down, and then they leave. You know, it's like, so I don't want that to happen. So... One thing I would do in particular was with the uh, Smashing Pumpkins. And uh, I was working with Rick, and I had a session that was coming up the next day. So the night before, I went into the studio with Sound City in Van Nuys, and uh, I was able to go into the studio, invite a band in, a fr some friends, to be my surrogate, Smashing Pumpkins. Set them up, set up all the mics, set up all the headphones, dialed it in, got everything sent. And then I had them play like a, a Smashing Pumpkins song. I'm like, okay, um, we're ready. So that band, when they came in, they walked in, they sat down, they put on their headphones, and they started playing, and I was recording just like that. And uh, that, that made everyone really happy, and I think, uh, I think Rick was impressed by that. But that's how I would like to approach every project if I can, get away with it. I, I want to be invisible. I want the technology to, to be invisible, um, that everything is worked out, everything's been chosen, um, and we're ready to go when they sit down. There's no wasting of time, hopefully. <laughs> Another set of recordings you did that are greatly admired by a lot of people is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I mm -hmm. think the microphone placement on a band like that has got to be a little tricky, especially with the drums, mm. right? Yeah, well, I, I generally use a very standard set of mics. Um, nothing particularly fancy. You know, uh, I like to use dynamics like the Schurz and Sennheisers uh, on the uh, kick and the toms and the snare, usually just an SM57 on top of the snare. And then I'll pick some, some uh, large diaphragm condenser mics for overheads. You can tell I'm a 
mic nerd. <laughs> I know all the details of all these mics, and I'm still learning. You know, so much to learn. But uh, but yeah, the, so a simple a, a simple collection of microphones. I can always depend on what I'm going to get, and I can move quickly. So that's that's I think part of my secret is that I grab these certain mics. I know what I'm going to get out of them. Bam, you know, uh, we get started right away because it's not about those mics or where it's placed. It's about making that the the musician feel comfortable enough to to not notice those at all, and that it's just me and the artist, and we're talking music, and that's it. And that that's the biggest challenge. Uh, every every session, I try to um, start where I know we can win. And, uh, and then we might stretch out and we might try this and that. But for the most part, I want, I want everyone to win. So let's just not fool around. This was our first segment uh, with Sylvia Massey. And uh, she, interesting, she loves reggae and she loves dub and <laughs> reggae dub. So this is a lot of fun. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I think that her love of music really comes across in each of the projects that she works with. And I think it's also interesting to me the discussion of the space that she creates um, in any studio that she works in it becomes her space. And I think that's important because the environment, as in the case of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it's really important that the artist is comfortable with where they're recording because the creativity process continues. It's not all, all these songs are not necessarily finished and worked completely out when a band comes to a studio. There's still some creative choices to be made. Let's do a different intro here. Uh, I'm not quite sure that ending works. Let's try it you know, differently. All that stuff happens in the studio. So it's always been Sylvia's position to say, let's make that as inviting as possible. Let's put a couch in. Let's have, a, you know, a refrigerator with snacks. I mean, you know, make it instead of this laboratory-like setting, which in the early days of recording, that's exactly what it was, uh, a much more family, you know, feel. And, uh, and I think that really works very, very well. What was your impression of that, Jonah? I really was really fascinated by the idea that she was just very diligent and she did play to uh, the singers, the artists, but she also uh, just wanted to make sure that they got in and got out. And she said that she loved um, recording with the substitute band for Smashing Pumpkins because they came in. She didn't have to do much else and they recorded and it was good and she didn't have to worry about more things and she just liked doing it and doing it quickly, but doing it well. And like she said in the interview, uh, she said, um, start where I know we could win because then if something may go wrong or she wants to tweak something, it'll just be small because she knows uh, she'll start everything. She'll put the couches down. She'll put the mics where they are. She'll uh, tweak certain things to make sure uh, she knows what, like, she'll have it as something that she knew it would be good. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think what's interesting is we sometimes forget about the enormity of skill that somebody like her has. You know, she, like you said, Jonah, microphone placement 
that's a whole college course and you still don't know it when you're done. You still have to go in and you have to feel and you need to know enough about the artists and the bands that you're working with in order to get the sound that these uh, artists want to be recorded. And she's amazingly skilled at that. Um, and all you have to do is listen to any one of these albums that she's talking about and you will totally get that. Amazing. Well, I've been distracted ever since Dan mentioned snacks. So um, <laughs> let's get back to our interview with Sylvia Massey, and she's going to talk about some of her favorite recording studios. Do you have a favorite room? There's several, yeah. Well, that Sound City room was very special, and I had equipment at Sound City in the B room. I had my studio in there for a long time. Um, but uh, I especially like in Los Angeles, I love um, Capitol, Studio B. I love East West, Studio 2, and Studio 1, the fantastic rooms. Um, I love the Village, the uh, Studio A at the Village has a nice old Neve in it. Um, I do tend to gravitate towards vintage audio gear or uh, boutique um, gear that is uh, modeled after some of the older designs. So um, I'm looking for that kind of thing when I go out looking for a studio to work in. There's some really nice uh, studios in Europe too, like uh, Great, let's see, Great Linford Banner. I don't believe that's there anymore. That was an English studio that I did uh, Skunk and Nancy in, and that was fantastic. <laughs> and then there, um, oh, Abbey Road is glorious. Um, and uh, the, uh, the studio in Dresden is the, um, the Castle Roarsdorf. And there's a nice old Neve in that too. And I've done several projects there and I just love being, you know, in Germany. Um, so there, there's a, and I like using the space to, to take that client and, and get the client to reflect on what's around them. And I think it really makes a difference in many ways on, on how the performances turn out. And what makes a good room in your estimation? Well, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to fuss over a room. You can have a warehouse and get great recordings in it. And, and I, um, so I, I think the room is important, but not to the point where um, it limits what you're going to do. So I, when, I, when I started Radio Star Studios in Northern California in a town called Weed, mm. I bought an old theater, an old vaudeville theater from 1906, something around there. It was an older building and uh, with 600 seats in it. And we just moved in. We just pulled out the back seats. We did not create a control room. We had open room recording in this big old theater. And oh my God, the recordings we did there. And it was so simple to control because I could put up curtains on the stage. There was a, a giant stage curtains and they would close and then suddenly I would have a, a smaller recording space. Um, and then I, of course I would use those gi that giant room whenever I could. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think that you can record. In fact, you don't have to be in a studio to make great recordings. Uh, some of the places I've recorded has been so incredible. Let, let's see, a couple years ago, I was in Rome, and I went to um, a, uh, a, a place where they have a lot of tombs, right? And uh, it was an ancient, um, uh, ancient city of the dead. And now most of the tombs are empty. I think 
almost all the tombs are empty. So we wandered through, found a nice tomb, set up my little, uh, my little recorder, my little sound devices, and we recorded um, a couple songs in this tomb. And, and you know, you, you, you can't even imagine how that environment affected the performances of the, the band Spiritual Front that I was recording there. Um, it really, it really works. Uh, there's been several other places that I've recorded that have been cre- um, incredible. There was a, a nuclear cooling tower that I brought a band called Thunder Pussy in. We set up similar, uh, had a laptop with the Pro Tools and recorded a multi-track in there. Uh, but the, the cement structure was so massive that you'd hit a snare and, and the delay would start and big, big, brrr, you know, it would just do these weird things. It was so unusual. So I look for these uh, interesting spaces to record and uh, try, to, try to do that as much as possible. That's really awesome. You, and you always try to gravitate towards vintage gear, don't you? I, mean, that's I do. What's really kind of yeah. special about that because there is a feel, isn't there? It's really hard to say, okay, listen to that. That's, that's the difference between a vintage and a, and a digital, but it's there. Yeah, and especially with microphones, it may be just the, the look of it that will inspire an artist to give you a different kind of recording, uh, performance. Um, For instance, one thing that I do for singers is when I give them their headphones, I give them compression in the headphones so they can hear themselves really well. They won't stretch their voice. They can, they'll give you a more, a more playful performance if they can hear themselves well. So for that also, I'll try a microphone that might inspire them. If it's a vintage looking microphone, it doesn't have to be a vintage microphone, but if it has a vintage look or a special look, they're going to, to uh, sing it a little differently, you know? Uh, especially, you know, if you want a vintage sound, give them a vintage mic or something that looks vintage and you'll, and, and you'll go in that direction. As we're continuing uh, talking about the interview with Sylvia Massey, um, one thing that I really loved was the idea that she puts like compression and she does it to uh, not only better the performance, but also inspire the artists. And um, she also uses vintage gear to inspire her artists. And I was so like surprised by that when I first heard about it. I was just like vintage gear. OK, it's cool. But why? Why use it? Because there might be more uh, like other things newer that might have better quality or might be better to use. But it was because it inspires the artists and makes them feel good. It brings them the mood that they would like for the songs. And I was just so like taken aback by that. And I think that is just so useful and so cool that that would be something that she thought about. Like she uh, made she thought about it and implemented it. And I think that's so cool. Very well said. That's exactly right. There's, you know, it's interesting to me is the subtleties of, let's say, microphones, for example. You can have a very old vintage microphone, um, and that's your go-to for a certain sound. And engineers who have these amazing ears can tell the differences between them that maybe we wouldn't necessarily pick out. But when you hear the end product, wow, that voice really sounded crisp and clear at that one point. Or it, w- it needed more of a raspy sound, and so they choose a different uh, microphone for that. It's just amazing to me uh, the depth of uh, knowledge 
that's required for this, but she certainly has it. And I think part of it is she has an amazing love for vintage gear and particularly microphones to the point of purchasing an entire collection, a museum basically, of microphones to ensure that they continue to be used and appreciated for those that still work. Um, and, um, and also to add to it, to, to that collection, which I know that she's been doing. Oh, wait, they didn't have this particular model. Let's find one and add it to the collection. It's amazing. Um, and it was, as Suzanne pointed out, being there and looking around and seeing these microphones. I mean, the original one of this and the original one of that was just absolutely wonderful and inspiring. And I think that that um, passion that she has certainly came across very, very uh, clearly in this next segment where she is picking up certain microphones and sharing with us uh, some of the highlights of her collection. The mics from the very beginning of the technology of recording our microphones, uh, that technology still works today, you know. So uh, we, we bought a museum it was the Paquette Museum in Milwaukee. A collection of microphones that span the history of microphone making. So it's not just the fancy studio mics or production mics. No, it's, it's the broadcasters and the amateur radio announcers and you know home broadcasting from the 30s and the, the uh, teens and the technology um, that was happening then was when radio was new. So there's several mics in this collection which are extremely historic and important, uh, including uh, the very early um, mics from uh, uh, Marconi. We have a Marconi mic that was uh, made in London in uh, the 20s that is the first dynamic mic ever made. It's called the Round Sykes mic, and we have that up there on the, on the wall. Wow. It's actually so big and heavy that I'm not going to bring it down. <laughs> but the Western Electric made a mic soon after that, which um, was a much smaller and easier to use dynamic mic. And it's a, I call it a ball and biscuit. I, I guess it's nicknamed the ball and biscuit. That's a popular name for it. And, and um, so this is a very important mic. But the, the mics I'm most excited about that I brought out to look at uh, is this one here. This is one of them. Mm. This is the RCA 44 prototype. So this is what Harry Olson, the designer, uh, this was his first mock-up and it works, it still works. It's got a ribbon in here. Um, but you can see this was hand formed. This actually, that mic became this very important mic here, mm. which is one of the, the most popular in history. And this is the RCA 44. And there is a company called AEA that actually uh, makes a new version of this now today, but RCA has stopped making microphones. And anybody who's ever seen any old pictures of radio broadcasts and early recordings, you're very familiar with that. You're going to know this. Yeah. That big booming announcer voice from the 40s, that's this mic. And 
and it really changed things because in Europe they were gravitating towards uh, condenser mics, which is a different technology. But in the U.S., the popular broadcast mic was the ribbon mic, and uh, most of them were RCA's. And RCA made a, uh, several different models. Another model that we have um, the prototype for, this was actually hand-built by Harry Olson from RCA. And this is the prototype for what became a very iconic mic, which is the 77. Oh and here's God. a 77. This, this version is actually a military 77. But you'll recognize the shape. It's that pill shape. Uh, the microphone technology in the late 1800s was mainly carbon-based microphones. And they started with a hard carbon stick or pencil. Uh, and then the jiggling of that would create um, a, uh, a current that was translated into audio signal. Uh, so the the... Around the turn of the century, in the 1900s, um, these mics were being perfected. And the, in Europe, they were making carbon mics like this. This is a Rice uh, Model 104. It's uh, made of marble. And it has a thin layer of carbon underneath this screen. The, the surprising thing about the, the story of this mic is that it was actually developed by a very young George Neumann. And George went on to create many fantastic mics that we still um, use today. That's incredible. Uh, so even though George didn't have his name on this, this is a Neumann mic. Uh -huh. George's first commercially released mic mm. was this, which is a CMV3. It was tagged Telefunken because Telefunken was kind of the uh, catch-all brand for electronics. So, uh, but this was not the first condenser microphone, actually. A lot of people credit George Neumann for creating the first um, co uh, condenser microphones, but in fact, uh, Western Electric, again, it was really? E.C. Wentz um, and... Uh, Westinghouse, General Electric, uh, a, co a collaborative that they developed these fantastic uh, condenser mics like this one. This is a condenser mic. It's from the mid-30s, early 30s probably. And uh, the, the amplifier that powers the uh, mic is in the body. We have such a fantastic collection here. Um, part of the Paquette Museum was also vintage radios and military equipment. And we have all that, but we're selling off most of that so that we can maintain the core of this extremely important historic microphone collection. There's a lot of provenance behind these microphones, too. The collector of the original collection was really good about taking notes and, and keeping documentation that said, this microphone came from this studio, yes. this one came from this radio station. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, Bob Paquette and his collection uh, is probably the largest and most complete in the world. Uh, again, it's not all the fancy mics, the Neumanns and the AKGs from Europe, but it's American mics uh, where the technology was developed. And some of the earliest uh, examples of those the technologies are here in this collection. 
and things that I never even knew about. And the great thing as a producer, if I can make it work, I'm going to use it, you know? It's just uh, the, the, the idea of recording, uh, I think is important because you're capturing history. Uh, and if we're capturing history with, with equipment that is historic also, then it just adds another layer onto it. So let's all be creative, uh, try new things. Um, it, it, recording should be an adventure. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Sylvia talk about her microphone collection. We were so fortunate to be there with her. She was like a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> she was just pulling them out and pointing out you know, her favorites and what was unique about different ones and what a fun experience that was. Well, thank you so much everybody for tuning in to this exciting episode of the Music History Project. So glad that you could join us. Uh, my closing thought is definitely how happy I am to have Jonah here. Thank you so much, Jonah, for uh, being our special guest and also with all of the help in the uh, pre-production of this podcast. We really appreciate it. We're glad you're here. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. I want to send out positive thoughts to the universe and to Sylvia Massey for allowing us to interview her. And I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the interview. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.